Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. So behind every great work, there are usually people that you've never heard of. Nameless, faceless people that are often doing things that aren't very glamorous, they're kind of mundane, and yet they are essential to the, the work that's being done. For instance, does anybody know who Francesco del Giocondo is? Do you guys recognize that name? You, you probably don't. I didn't recognize that name, but you recognize his work because he is responsible for the Mona Lisa. You're like, no, no, he's not. We know Leonardo da Vinci painted that painting, right? Of course. And of course he did, but it was uh, Francesco, who commissioned this, he funded it, and that's actually his wife, Lisa. Uh, and so he, he hired da Vinci to paint this portrait of his wife. And we have one of the greatest masterpieces in the world, not just because of da Vinci, but because of Francesco. Or what about this power couple? Do you guys uh, know Ludovico Sforza? I'm just I'm nailing these names. And Beatrice Desta. Desta. Uh, you recognize them, of course. Uh, and, and again, you probably have never heard of them, but you would recognize their work because they were the ones who commissioned this painting. Again, da Vinci painted it, but it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this, this power couple, Beatrice and Lorenzo or something, uh, who decided that they want, it was their idea, and they funded this painting. Or what about this name? John Jacob Raskob. Not to be confused with John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. I know you've heard of him. Uh, but John Jacob Raskob, maybe some of you have heard that name. You're familiar with that name. Uh, but most of you probably aren't. I wasn't familiar with that name. But you're, again, you're familiar with his work which is the Empire State Building. He was one of the key players who initiated and financed the building of the Empire State Building. And, and yet, whenever he went out, people did not shout, there goes John Jacob Raskob, because you know, most people don't know who he is. And yet, we're, we're familiar with his work. And, and so often, some of these, these great works of art and, and literature and and, you know, and movies, think about movies, right? You get to the end of the movie and then you watch all of the names going through the end credits and you're like, it's like thousands of people. And thanks to, to Marvel movies and their pension for post-credit scenes, you actually sit and watch the credits now and they just go on and on and on. And you see all of these names. In fact, uh, I, I found out this week that the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, the end credits is 27 minutes long. 27 minutes long. That's like a whole another TV show added to the end, just going through the list of people that are on there that were responsible for making this happen. And even though we, we all are probably, most of us are probably familiar now with the name Peter Jackson, he's the, the mastermind behind this. Like, you know Peter Jackson, but you probably don't know Denise Bristow, right? Have you heard of that name? I hadn't, but Denise Bristow, she was the payroll accountant for Lord of the Rings, it's not glamorous, it's not exciting, but I'm pretty sure the movie would not get made if it wasn't for Denise Bristow doing her job and making sure people got paid, because it turns out people don't like to work for free. And, and, and so there's, there's often, so often, these nameless, faceless people that, that never get any recognition. Nobody knows them, and yet we're, we're familiar with their work. For instance, the Apostle Paul. 
Everybody knows the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. In Michael Hart's uh, you know, 1970s book, The Most Hundred Influential People of All Time, the Apostle Paul was number six, the most influ- number six most influential person of all time. Like across the globe, people know the Apostle Paul because of the, the, his contributions to the church and the missionary movement being launched by him. You know the Apostle Paul, but do you know Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus? Chances are, you don't. Chances are, these are not household names. These aren't people that are being celebrated. But today, believe it or not, today, we are coming to the end of our First Corinthians series. I, I know, you guys didn't think we could do it uh, since we started like a year ago. And we've been going verse by verse for like since last fall. But today, we're coming to the end of First Corinthians. Paul is saying goodbye. We're going to be looking at the last chapter of Corinthians. And in his goodbye, Paul decides to kind of like roll the credits a little bit to show that he's not working alone. And he highlights these three people just as examples. It's not just, these aren't the only three, but examples of normal, everyday people. All right? These aren't missionaries. These aren't pastors. These are just normal, everyday people with normal jobs and normal families who contributed to the work. And look what he says about them. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they had devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. He says, I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they've supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. And he says, such men deserve recognition. Oh, he's like, oh, man, I wish, I wish you guys knew about these people, the unsung heroes behind the missionary movement and the advancement of the gospel. These, oh, man, I wish that these were the people that were being recognized. Like, you know me and you know Apollos, but do you know these guys? These are just kind of the normal, everyday people that are, are advancing the gospel through the, the work of the church. He says that they were the, like the first converts in that, that whole region. If it wasn't for them, his work would, would have stopped short. They've been instrumental in the advancement of the gospel. And, you know, the, the people in Corinth knew them because they just knew them from the community. And even though their names are recorded in Scripture, they're, they're not household names, not like the Apostle Paul. If they were instrumental in the work. Nobody, you know, we might not know their names, but we know their work. We're able to look at the church and what it is today and how it moved through the Roman Empire. And it wasn't just Paul. It was Paul and everyday normal believers who, he says, they did something specific. He says they, they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. All right, normal everyday followers of Jesus who devoted themselves to the the service of the Lord's people. And the Apostle Paul suggests that this is actually, this is the, the natural result of the resurrection. That is people who have come to to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's going to raise us up as well. This is the natural outcome. And we took the last couple weeks to work through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and that it's the longest chapter in the entire letter. It's 58 verses, all right? And for 57 verses of chapter 15, Paul is just explaining the glory of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. We know that. We saw it, he said. Jesus rose from the dead. He's going to raise us. He's going to give us new spiritual bodies. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be amazing. And he says, if, if you believe that, if you know that, there's an, an expected outcome of that. So he takes 57 verses to explain the resurrection. And then in verse 58, the last verse of chapter 15, he says, therefore, all right, if the resurrection is true, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. He says, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. 
because you know that your labor in the end is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He says, if you believe the resurrection is true, this is, this is the outcome. And then later in chapter 16, he holds up uh, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus as, as people that were doing this. They were living this out. They were giving themselves fully to the work of the Lord. And he's saying, you should recognize these people. But in between where he introduces this idea and where he holds up these three men who are examples of actually living it out. In between that, in chapter 16, what he does is he actually explains a little bit in kind of practical terms what it looks like for the everyday follower of Jesus to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord. And he highlights two activities Two activities, and, and it could be more than this, right? For different followers of Jesus, God might call you into specific things here and there, and it might be more than this, but it won't be less than these two specific activities. And the first is to fuel the mission of Jesus institutionally. To fuel the mission of Jesus institutionally. So immediately after, he says, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He goes into chapter 16, and the next thing he says, this is now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what the Galatian churches do on the first day of the week, each one of you. So who does this apply to? Each one of you, right? Uh, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. This is each one of you. And we know from earlier in the letter that there's a, a wide range of economic uh, like situations going on in the church of Corinth, and yet he says each one of us. Regardless of where we are, we're going to contribute something to the collection of the Lord's people. You notice how he starts. He says, now about the collection of the Lord's people. He uses this way of introducing topics several times throughout the letter. And the scholars and the commentators, they, they tell us that the reason he introduces it this way is because this is a response to questions that the Corinthians were asking. So they had asked about marriage and singleness and stuff about food sacrifice to idols, and each time he kind of says, like, now about this, and now about that, and now, now about the collection for the Lord's people. So they, they probably asked about the collection for the Lord's people, and he responds. But what I find interesting is the timing, because he, he doesn't address this question in the body of the letter with everything else. He saves it for the end, because he's, he's trying to draw our attention to what it looks like for an average, everyday follower of Jesus to be fully devoted to the Lord and has a lot to do with this collection for the Lord's people. This idea of being able to fuel the mission of Jesus institutionally. And when I talk about fueling the mission of Jesus institutionally, uh, I, I struggled with the word, like, is institutional the right word? Is that, uh, and I, I even, like, pulled up the thesaurus to see if, like, maybe there's some better words. And I was kind of surprised at the synonyms for institutional. Like, I expected things like corporate and governmental. Uninteresting? <laughs> like, I did not make these up. Dreary, dry, depressing. Uh, <laughs> humdrum, pedestrian, monotonous. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe institutional is not the right, but there, there is actually, it is the right word because there's something about fueling the mission of Jesus institutionally that it, it's not depressing, all right? But sometimes it is kind of dry and it's just kind of monotonous and it's kind of ordinary. It's not necessarily glamorous and sensational all the time to fuel the mission of the church institutionally. But when I, I talk about us fueling the, the mission of Jesus institutionally, I'm talking about us as a body of Christ, right, together, not just as individuals, but as the body of Christ, as a unit, 
collectively being engage, engaging with the mission of Jesus. So for instance, we sent out the, the students to Beaumont, Texas, and they were talking about it earlier today. And so those students went individually on mission, but they didn't go alone, right? Because you guys commissioned them, you guys funded them, you guys supported them. And so in, in a sense, that was an institutional mission, right? We all were part of what happened there. And even though only those 11 students went with those three leaders, us as a, a church, as an institution, was engaging with the mission of Jesus in Beaumont, Texas. And, and not only did you guys support the, tri- the trip and the team itself, but then there's Sarah. So Sarah, who organized the trip and recruited the students and recruited the leaders and figured out all the logistics for the trip, she was able to do that because when you give on a regular Sunday, you're, you're contributing to her part-time salary at the church, which gives her the ability to be able to organize these things and run our, our student ministries. And so all of that is the, the church functioning and engaging in the mission of God institutionally corporately, organizationally. Think of it as not just like individuals on mission, but us together as a unit, as the local church and as the global church. And Paul is saying that for the, the normal everyday follower of Jesus, one of the ways we engage fully in the mission of God is we, we fuel the mission of Jesus on this, this institutional level. And it, uh, it shows up in a couple of ways. Right, he continues on in the next verse. He says, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Right? So he says he's going to send this money to Jerusalem. I, I love this. He also says, like, you, you pick the people that are going to take it. Like, I'm not going to take it. I don't want to be responsible for that. You pick the people that you trust. Like, let's keep it above board. But he says, I'm going to send it to Jerusalem. And he doesn't explain what it's going to do in Jerusalem, but we know from other letters in the New Testament that there is severe poverty uh, being experienced in the church in Jerusalem, and that this collection for the Lord's people was largely going to alleviate the intense poverty that was being experienced by the church in Jerusalem. And it highlights one of the, the facets of this fueling the mission of Jesus, which is being able to care for the poor and care for the needy. That as we are fueling the mission of Jesus and we're, we're funding these things, one of the, the key areas is caring for the poor and the needy. But then Paul, he continues on, and he seems to make a, a weird transition. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while and even spend the winter there so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. And it seems like he just kind of makes this complete turn. Like now he's talking about his plans, of his travel plans that may or may not happen, and I want to come by you. But, but here we see what he, he's getting at. He, the reason he wants to come is so that you, the Corinthians, can help me on my journey wherever I go. That he's actually coming in hopes that they are going to financially support him wherever he goes next in the the advancement of the gospel. And this is interesting because earlier in this letter, Paul talks about how when he came to Corinth, he made sure that he didn't take any money from them. He wanted to make sure that when he brought the gospel there, that they knew this is a gift from God. This is by grace, right? We aren't earning this. You're not paying for it. He wanted to make sure it was a free gift. He didn't want to be a burden to anybody. But now he says, now that the gospel's already come, now that you already know about the resurrection, I am hoping that you're going to support me so that I can go to the next place and I can bring the gospel to the next city and the next town and the next group of people and the next person, the advancement of the gospel. And so this fueling the mission of Jesus comes in the form of caring for the poor, 
but also supporting the advancement of the gospel, supporting the gospel workers, right? And, and Paul, when he's talking about going on his journey, he doesn't go alone. He goes with a team of people, a missionary team, and making sure that these people are fed and cared for so that they can devote themselves to the work of the gospel. This is the, the first thing that Paul talks about as uh, part of, of being, uh, giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord, is fueling the mission of Jesus institutionally. As we drive in a little bit deeper, if we go back to verse 2, Paul gives us like a couple of really practical, helpful tips on how to do this. All right? So this is what we're called to do. How do you do this? Uh, I love this first one. He says, on the first day of the week, I think for us it wouldn't be the first day of the week. It would be like payday. So whatever payday is, maybe you get paid weekly or biweekly or monthly or whatever. Uh, he says that, that first day on payday, he says, set aside a sum of money, saving it up. So right off the top, and I love this advice. And I, I discovered this when I was a, a teenager. I don't remember who told me or what, but I discovered it as a teenager, which, by the way, is the time to discover it. So I know we have some teenagers over here. Now is the time to start. But I, uh, I, you know, somebody told me about this, and so I had set up an extra bank account. And so when I got paid, I would just immediately take a sum of that money and put it right into that bank account. And I would save it up. And I, I loved being able to do this because it made being generous not just, like, doable, but easy. Because I had this, like, fund. And then when, you know, somebody came to me with a need, I was actually able to give generously. Like, it wasn't like, oh, man, do I have the money? It was like, oh, I had this little, like, slush fund over here. And there was actually at one point uh, a group of youth groups, uh, like four or five youth groups were coming together to do an event. And I was kind of helping work out the logistics for it. And they realized they had no funding for it. And I was like... I have funding. I just have this, this fund over here that I've been kind of giving into with every paycheck. And so I was able to like fund it and fund the, the promotions of it. And it wasn't like a lot of money, but for me at the time, it was a lot of money. It was a really kind of significant thing for me to be a part of. And it wasn't even hard. It was easy because of this super practical advice. Just take it off the top as if it's never yours. Put it aside so no collections have to be made. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> Thanks, Nima. Uh, this is the problem when you hold a remote and you talk with your hands. Uh, I should probably have like one of those strings that it like is on my belt. Uh, but uh, I, I say all this because this, this advice was so, so helpful for me. Uh, and I realized, you know, if you're young and you start now and you just grow into that, it's super easy. I realized for others, like it's too late. You're already living like at the, the limit of your income. And so getting back to this would take more work. But man, once you get there, it's really nice to be able to just have the funds to respond to needs and to, to fund the mission, fuel the mission and giving to the church and giving to people that you know, come to you and ask for help. And it's, it's really freeing to be able to do that. So that's the first uh, tip. The second tip that he offers up, he says, in keeping with your income, and as I was uh, reading the, the commentaries and uh, the scholars on this, they, they kept mentioning that there's something lost in translation in this phrase, in keeping with your income. Because when you read in keeping with your income, you can almost think of like a percentage. Like, oh, you know, if you make this much, you're going to give 10%, which is going to be this much. And if you make this much, you're still going to give 10%, which is this much. Uh, and, and sure, it can mean that, but it's not, it's not what Paul is trying to convey through this. And, uh, the New English translation, it, it gives a more literal translation. It says, set aside some income and save it to the extent that God has blessed you. All right, there's a very different mindset. It's not like in keeping with your income. It's to the extent that God has blessed you. And it's drawing attention to the fact that, first off, 
Everything you have is a gift from God. That God has blessed you with this. And he's blessed you with this, not just for your own enjoyment. Maybe there's some of that in there, but he's blessed you with it. And we always see this throughout the whole of Scripture. When God blesses us with something, it's in the hopes that we're going to use that to bless others, right? And so he's saying, in in the ways that God has blessed you, and yeah, God is going to bless different people financially in different ways, and yet, for all of us in this room, God has blessed us significantly through the cross of Christ. We are people who stand blessed already. Regardless of what happens financially, we are radically blessed because we have a Savior who went to the cross for us. And then on top of that, God gives this added blessing of material blessing. And when we think of like the term in keeping with your income, what happens is, you know, you get a bonus and you think, oh, well, in keeping with my income, well, now I'll give 10% of that and I'll keep the rest of it for me and I'm going to save it. I'm going to do something special with it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you, you think of it in terms of, oh, man, God has just blessed me with this like unexpected sum of money. And we start thinking, what in the world can I do with this? How can I be a blessing to other people? How can I use this to fuel the mission of God forward, whether it's through caring for the poor or supporting the advancement of the gospel? But how can I use this to be a blessing to other people? And it's two very different mindsets, right? The, the idea of like in keeping with your income and this idea of like tithing 10%, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, there's nothing in the New Testament that throws out the 10% number. It's like an Old Testament thing. And there can be an argument made for like why that maybe holds in the New Testament. But we're never given a prescription for how much we're supposed to give in the New Testament. Never once. We're given descriptions of people giving. And you don't want to draw prescriptions from the descriptions. Because usually people are giving way more than 10%. Sometimes people are giving 50%. Sometimes people are selling their investment properties and giving all of it to the, the gospel. Like if you're taking it as a prescription, like... It's pretty steep, but it's, it's not even meant to be that. There are no prescriptions for how much we're supposed to give because it's not about supposed to give. It's not about ought. It's not about should, right? I think sometimes we, we come to this idea of like giving to God and we have the mentality of taxes, right? Well, we have to pay taxes. We have to kind of set this aside. We have to give it over here. And we all do this. We all take at least one day every year, one day every year, we do everything we can that day to make sure that we are paying the bare minimum in taxes, right? We go out of our way, we hire people, we spend money to make sure we're not giving more than we have to. And I think sometimes we approach giving and and tithing and and supporting the, the mission, fueling the mission with that same mindset of like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to do this. So we kind of like, we give what we need to to get God off of our back. I'm like, all right, check that box. Now I have this that I get to do whatever I want with and we do whatever we want with it. But this idea of of saving some to the extent that God has blessed you, it's a completely different mindset. It's not about what am I supposed to do. It's what can I do with this? How can I use this? It's less like taxes and it's more like a GoFundMe page, right? You don't have to pay to the GoFundMe page. That's You find those things and people send it to you and you get inspired. and You say, I want to do something meaningful with this. This seems like a cause that I want to get behind. And this is the invitation that Paul is saying. He's like, yes, God has blessed you. And here is an opportunity for you to use that money in a way where it's going to have an eternal consequence. 
right? It's an investment in eternity. And you guys know us at Beacon. We don't like to talk about money. You know, we've seen people uh, kind of use the gospel to try and manipulate people. We've had bad experiences ourselves, and we know you've probably had bad experiences. So we get really awkward about money. But at the same time, I, I will say this. I hope that you give and give generously to the church. And I say that, and I just want you to know, you giving generously to the church does nothing for my salary, right? Like, it's not like I'm saying that because I want to make more money. Just so you know, I don't even have a say in my salary. I don't have a say in any of the money, and I like it that way. Uh, I don't want to touch that, all right? I'm like Paul. Like, you find some people to take care of that, right? Uh, But... But I do hope that you will give and give generously to Beacon, to care for the poor, but to also it, to fuel the, the advancement of the gospel, right? This, this coming year, like, things are going to be a little tight. There's a recession, giving's down a little bit because of, like, the pandemic and post that, and our investments are down because, like, you know, investments are down. And so, like, we're, we're kind of shrinking the budget and we're cutting things back here and there. And, like, one of the things that we, we cut out of the budget for now, at least, is our mailings. And it's like, oh, no, I hate cutting out the mailings. And, and some of you know why I hate cutting out the mailings, because some of you are here because you got a mailer from Beacon, and then you came to the church, and you came to know Jesus, and you got baptized here because you got a postcard. And so I'm like, yes, I want to be able to fund those things. And, and so, yeah, of course, I would be glad to see you guys give to the church, not because you should, but because I know that it is way more fun to see somebody get baptized on account of your contributions, see somebody come to know Jesus, to be able to have the opportunity to run into him in eternity, that is way more fun than even like a really exotic vacation or, or a new flat screen TV or a new hobby or whatever. And, and please don't, don't mishear it. I'm not saying like don't do those things. I'm not saying that that's bad. And if you hear any of this as like, this is what you're supposed to do, then we've already lost it. This is an invitation He's saying, being devoted, giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord is this invitation to impact eternity. And sure, maybe, you know, your your name won't be remembered, but people are going to know your work because you are part of something meaningful. So that's the first part. And we we see that this is what Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus did, right? They arrived and Paul was glad. He was so glad when they arrived because he said they supplied what was lacking. They came and they, they supplied financially what was lacking. And Paul was so glad, not because, you know, he needed it to eat, but he knew that, those, th- that financial investment meant the gospel was going to go places it hadn't before. He was so glad. And we're so glad for you when you do that as well. And you guys are so generous. And, you know, I mean, just, when, even as I talk about this, I want to just commend so many of you because you're so generous and you, you're already doing this. You're demonstrating that you're devoted to the Lord in this way. Now, the second thing that he adds is to love like Jesus personally. So yes, fuel the, the mission institutionally, but love like Jesus personally. He says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. And he, he adds this in right in between him talking about financing and fueling the church financially. And before he gives the example of Stephanus and Fortunatus and all of them, right in between, he adds this in here. And I think he adds it in here because, I don't know if you know this, it is possible to fuel the mission of Jesus financially, to do so generously, and to be a jerk. <laughs> To not love 
Uh, in fact, and I've been amazed at times that like, people are exceptionally generous with their finances, giving to the church and missions and all of that stuff can just not be loving people. And he's saying, well, no, no, it's not, it's not one or the other. It's just a both and sort of thing that we, we also need to be loving like Jesus personally. And this is not some like mere sentimentalism, like, oh, just be a nice person and all that. Uh, no, and I know that because look at how he prefaces do everything in love. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Like nobody prefaces something like that. Like be on your guard. Stand firm. Be courageous. Be strong. Because this is going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be sunshine and puppy. No, no. Like this is, this is battle language. Like get ready because to do everything in love is really hard. And when he talks about doing everything in love, he's, this is referencing back to the whole letter that he just wrote. This isn't simply about just being nice, which it is, but it's talking about all of the things that he's covered throughout this letter, and it's hard to love like Jesus. You know, it, it is really easy. It's really easy when Christian brothers and sisters do something to offend you. It's really easy to just write them off. It's easy to get outraged, but it's really hard to love them and to pursue reconciliation. Like, that's hard. And it's, it's really easy for me or you to just... Let all of our sexual appetites be satisfied, regardless of how that affects other people or ourselves or society as a whole. It's really easy to just kind of indulge in that, but it's really hard to pursue purity in a culture that doesn't, doesn't value that. Right? It's really easy to bail on your marriage when it, you know, it's just not working anymore. That's easy, but it's really hard to love your spouse when they seem least lovable to, to fight for that relationship. It's really easy to be religious, to kind of check some things off of a religious box and do the, the, you know, the Sunday attendance thing. It's really hard to obey Jesus. Like those things are hard. Loving like Jesus is hard. It's going to require you to be on your guard because you need, you need to be watching out because your default reaction sometimes is not going to be love. Your default reaction is going to be self-preservation or, or self-affirmation in those moments. And so he says, be on your guard, be on the lookout. He says, stand firm in the faith because there's going to be some times where you're, you're not sure you want to trust Jesus on this because it just doesn't seem like he has your best interest. He says, no, you got to stand firm in the faith of who he is and what he's done for you. So be courageous because there are times when fear is going to drive you to inaction or wrong action. He said, no, no, you need to be courageous. He says, you need to be strong because it's going to take a lot of effort. And you're going to get tired, but you need to, to be strong so that you can do everything in love. And he, he goes on and he praises Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. And look at what he says. So uh, they were loving like Jesus personally and not only did they supply what was lacking, but he says, they've refreshed my spirit and yours also. I love this. They refreshed my spirit and yours also. This is, I, I think, the indication of somebody who is loving like Jesus. They're refreshing to be around. Are you refreshing? Like when people walk away from being with you, a conversation with you, do they feel like, oh, I feel refreshed? Some neighbors uh, and I are, are organizing a block party for, uh, for our block for a Saturday. And in order to get the permit, I had to go door to door and uh, collect these signatures and uh, get people to just say, like, it's okay to have a block party. And I'm no dummy, so I strapped Simon, you know, our two-month-old, to my chest when I went door to door. So everybody said yes. Uh, but, but it was funny because, like, going door to door, uh, people... We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to sign. But like, they would often throw in, like, good luck getting so-and-so to sign. 
You know, there's, I'm like, oh man, I hope, I hope I'm never like the, in somebody's conversation, like that they're talking about like, good luck with Trevor. Like at work, you know, like, oh, you know, are you the, in someone's conversation, are you refreshing? Are you the type of person that is, is, good to be. People love walking away from you because when they've been in your presence, they have just been loved by somebody like Jesus would love them. Are you refreshing? And this is what it looks like to be fully devoted to the work of the Lord that we're, we're fueling the mission of Jesus. We're fueling it by caring for the poor and, and supporting the advancement of the gospel, right? In that financial way, but we're also just we're doing everything in love. We're loving people the way that Jesus loves people. And it's not glamorous. Very often it's just kind of normal, everyday stuff. But this, this is the work that Jesus is calling us into. And I think, I think personality types play a role in this a little bit. Because I, I think for some of us, it's easier to fuel the mission. And for others, it's easier to love like Jesus. And I want to challenge you because when you hear this, depending on your personality type, you you might want to focus in on where you're doing well. But this is not an either or, right? There's other times in Corinthians uh, where Paul says, oh, you know, you have this gift, I have this gift, and blah, blah, blah. This is not a thing about gifting. This is is something that we, it's a both and. That if we just pick one or the other, we are not fully giving ourselves to the Lord's work. We are just partially giving ourselves to the Lord's work. And so I want you to think, where do you struggle more? How can you grow in that particular? How can you, you pursue to, to fully give yourself to the work of the Lord in that particular area? And here's what I love. So we go back to that, that verse where we started. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's a lot of things that we can do in vain. There's a lot of ways that we can let our love grow cold in vain. There's a lot of opportunities to get caught up in petty arguments and even win petty arguments in vain. A lot of ways for us to pursue selfish ambition and to trample over people in vain. There's a lot of ways for us to use our money in vain. Not necessarily bad things, but in vain right? To have a successful career in vain. To experience all that life has to offer in vain. To make sure our kids have every opportunity in vain. There's a lot of ways that we can lose our love and spend our money in vain. But if you're giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord, there is nothing that you could do in vain. This is worth it. We know it's worth it because Jesus rose from the dead and he's going to raise you too. And 10,000 years from now, when you choose to give yourself to the work of the Lord, 10,000 years from now, you're going to be bumping into people, people that you don't know and they don't know you and they've never heard your name, but they're familiar with your work. Because they're there in eternity on account of you giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And this is the, the promise and the expectation. And this is the, the invitation, right? This is not a command. This is an invitation for you to join 
in what God is doing here and now in a way that is going to last forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for all the ways that you have blessed us abundantly, richly. God, you've given us new life. You've given us this hope of resurrection. God, and I I pray that we'll be able to see these blessings as an opportunity uh, and, and resources to bless others with, that we would give ourselves fully to that work, that we would give sacrificially to care for the poor and to fuel the mission of Jesus, to see the the advancement of the gospel on Long Island and across the globe because we're willing to to invest our money that way, God, and that you'd give us the the discipline, that we would be able to to be on guard, to stand firm, to be courageous, to be strong so that we can love everyone always. God, that we would be a church full of refreshing people who are fully devoted to the work that you've called us into. God, and we look forward to the day where we get to see the results of this work. We get to meet the people in eternity who are the result of the work that's going to be accomplished to the people in this room. pray this in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.